the students will tell you that A, it's the hardest class they've ever taken, but it's the only class they take in their academic career that allows them to use everything they use in the university, every network they've built to work on a real problem with real people that gives them real experience that leads to real jobs. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today I'm chatting to Pete Newell. Pete ran the Skunk Works in the US Army for three years. He's done some fabulous things. It reminds me of two of my favorite military history books, I guess. Vulcan 607 by Roland White and his new book, Harrier 809, both of which are, you know, in time of conflict, how do ordinary people come together and do incredible things, solve difficult problems, and I guess get men and machinery into harm's way when that seemed impossible. The first one is about Vulcan bombers bombing Port Stanley, and the second one is about scratching together an entire new squadron of Harrier jump jets and converting a container ship into an aircraft carrier and getting it to the Falklands. But Pete found himself at the end of his 30-year military career running the U.S. Army Skunk Works. And so he had smart people, lots of money, and problems to solve. And he had a remit to go and find problems and solve them, try and find commercial technology that could solve a battlefield problem. He came up with 300 problems. He solved 20 of them. And he tells the story in some detail today about how he took a bobcat, you know, that sort of tracked thing with a an arm at front. You know, people use them for... In fact, we had one in the garden in Limington. It had to come through the house because there was no access in the garden. So these are small tracked vehicles for moving earth. And they converted them into minesweepers for goat tracks to save hundreds and hundreds of lives uh, in Afghanistan. And what Pete has solved is he believes he's created an operating system for innovation. And he's got three bits to his business now because actually the, he was so successful in the US Army, they promoted him. And so he left because he wanted to carry on doing what he's doing and continue to change the world. He's on a mission to help government organizations around the world, to to help defense organizations and intelligence organizations to innovate. And he talks about what that operating system is that drives innovation inside businesses. He's created an academic course that's now taught in universities all over the world, Hacking for Defense is, is, is the course that they've created, university course that was first taught in Stanford University. Absolutely fantastic conversation. And there's no book yet. The book, is, the book is in the works, but there's some fantastic nuggets in here about what you need to do. What, what are the fundamental things inside an organization that you need to do to drive in an innovation in your business. And in fact, one of the, uh, one of the examples he gives is he, he was asked to do some work for Macy's. And even though Macy's could see that they needed to change, they were unable to change and ultimately went bust. Fantastic conversation. I loved it. It's a longer episode than normal, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Pete Newell. I'm the CEO of BMNT and the founder of the nonprofit called the Common Mission Project. Uh, and essentially... Uh, the work we do is involved in, in building uh, enterprise-level innovation practices within large organizations and creating a platform that both allows us to incubate uh, new companies and accelerate their um, entry into the market. 
a lot of the work we do is is focused on the public space and helping uh, large government organizations actually work better with the commercial world and deliver uh, better services faster, you know, for the benefit of the folks in the countries. I come at this, I, I probably as a passion, I spent, uh, you know, the first 32 years of my career in the military as an army officer, um, several tours of duty in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Balkans. And, uh, and towards the end of my career, I, I spent three years running the U.S. Army Skunk Works, a place called the Rapid Equipment Force, which was essentially responsible for taking uh, emerging commercial technologies that, that would benefit uh, solving a problem on a battlefield and and get them to the battlefield faster than uh, the system typically could. Uh, and so and what, the, are, you are you allowed to talk about some of the th commercial things that you took to the battlefield? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I will tell you that I, over a three-year period, I worked on everything from underground robotics to uh, unmanned aerial systems to uh, traumatic brain injury analysis to uh, things that blow up to you know, things you see in the dark, to, um, um, you name it. We, we've touched a lot of things. And the way I tell those people is that in the realization or the epiphany that I had running that job was that the real challenge, and particularly the military has, and now I'm finding the governments have, is understanding their own problems and extracting them, in this case, from the battlefield and articulating them in a manner that other people could understand. And they're very rapidly recruiting really brilliant people to work on those problems. Not only I professionalized the methodology to make that happen, but the idea of uh, problem recruitment, uh, curation, and prioritization was missing in this process of trying to innovate. The way the military done in the past is they say, you know, what's your requirement? Here's your thing. Not realizing that they're investing time and energy um, perfectly solving the wrong problem. Yes. Because they didn't invest, you know, I need to go back to Einstein. You know, he said, if I, you know, if I had time, I'd spend 99% of it understanding the problem I was solving. We, we, for some reason, have thrown that idea out and gone straight to build the thing and deliver it. And unfortunately, we were delivering things that were obsolete the day they hit the battlefield because the problems were changing too fast. I would tell you, the, the numbers that I, that I tell people over a three-year period, um, we ended up generating, I think, 380, no, 780 unique problems that were categories that categorized in about 10 areas. We started 360 projects and delivered 115 unique solutions to the battlefield, 20 of which eventually became long-term programs of record. Huh. Um, so from an investor standpoint, we were rock stars at, at putting in the money in the right places. So if you go from 780 to 20 in a three-year period, that's a pretty good track record. Um, I took a $120 million budget and turned it into $3 billion worth of investment. In other words, I got wow. good at using other people's money to, to get work done. Because you, know, you came up with a problem and went to commercial organizations and, and they could see that if they could solve the problem, there was massive upside to them. Um, yes, or it wasn't a distraction to them. I think we really had to, you know, first we had to, to explain the problems we were trying to solve in a manner that helped people understand that translation part of, I can find a problem, and if I get the verbiage right, I can actually find its, its twin in commercial industry, which will help me find the right people to talk to about a solution. And the closer my um, military application is to their commercial application, the easier it is for them to do a slight turn and provide me a product that I can then ruggedize and, and move to the battlefield faster. Uh -huh. and, and I had the, the budget, the people, and the authority to, to do all of that to you know, contracting things to be ruggedized and tested uh, in order to smooth the pathway for people to actually enter that, that arena. So um, there were a lot of cases that we found, what I would say, um, 
stuck technology sitting on a shelf someplace and said, you know, I have a problem that that tech would solve and, and build a group around that that could actually help me take that tech and turn it into, you know, a solution that would actually do something. And was that last three years of your military career the most fun you had in the army? You know, I, um, I did you prefer say, being shot at? Well, you know, outside being a you know a commander, I, you know, I was uh, an infantryman, so I commanded at the platoon company battalion brigade level. Um, I will tell you, it was the most professional and personally rewarding three years I spent. And what I didn't realize, because I'm not an engineer, I've never been an acquisition person, I'm not a scientist. And I've certainly never been an entrepreneur. Is that I realized that I was an entrepreneur, and I've always been one, or I've always had those traits. But I'd never had a platform where I had no barriers to actually going out and doing it. And in this case, I actually had a demand stream that said, "This is your job, and you need to get out and and break things and create a mess and make people nervous, so that we um, address the problems that we have." And so part of the reason I retired, you know, in 2013 was that at the end of that, you know, the Army guys came in, you do a great job and we want you to be a general. And to do that, you need to go to Korea and be a speechwriter for this four star, which is like, you know, that's the next step. And, and I realized it's not what I want to do. <laughs> I found my home, I found my niche, I found my passion. And, and by God, that, that's what I was going to do. So, so the, the, the way this plays out is they say, you know, we've nominated you for this job. But I said, I don't want it. I'm not doing it. And I said, I know, okay. And, and I thought it went away. And five months later, they come back and say, uh, you're going to take this job. And, and basically what it said is we've nominated eight people for the job. They've all been turned down except you. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, man, I'm saying, you don't understand if you try and make me take the job, I will retire. Now, and at that point, I, I almost I got angry. Um, I realized that from an enterprise level, from the big building looking down, uh, what I was and what I was doing was not viewed as essential, and that doing something else was. And and I, you know, that was really conflicting for me. Huh. So I decided I had no business being a general, and I literally, in the course of a 60-second conversation, decided to retire. Um, retired a year later, moved to Palo Alto, and started uh, a company with four people standing in a driveway. Absolutely, just like every startup in the world. Um, and, and kind of the, you know, the mentality I've taken is if, if you want to learn, you got to do it. You can't read a book. Um, you can't watch. You certainly can't watch Silicon Valley, the TV <laughs> show, and realize what it's like to actually build a startup. Uh, so I built a startup uh, into a company that that's quite valuable today. Um, and then I wanted to learn how to invest in companies. So I actually took my own money and started investing in companies because I wanted to learn how companies were built. Uh, and, you know, somewhere in this process, I, I met Steve Blank, and Steve and I um, self-combusted. <laughs> <laughs> the two of us are so much alike. Uh, and we realized that the process that I had built on the battlefield of, of um, curating problems and truly understanding what the problems were and prioritizing them was the missing part of lean methodology. Uh-huh. So do all that problem investing up front and feed it into lean, you get a vastly different experience and uh, a higher percentage of things that come out the other end that are hugely valuable. Um, that over Steve and I met in 2015, I think, over the past five years, it's literally turned into um, an operating system that, that helps um, people actually apply innovation inside their organizations. And so the and so you teach that applied innovation methodology and you and you run it for people and you also have a special focus on doing it for government yes i guess that's yes, where you, yeah 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 um and i'll tell you it, it, it's probably better i'll tell you the story of how it came about um we were prototyping something and 
a government agency, you know, was frustrated because they couldn't engage people at Silicon Valley about something that was important to the military. And this was right about the, the time that we had the problem with the national security uh, agency um, spying in the wrong places and doing something. So there was this listening to the phone, basically the phone, listening to the phone calls of the German chancellor uh, yeah, and, and, and things. <laughs> yes. Um, well, actually, so, not listening. Getting caught listening—that's listening. Yeah. Listening's what they do for a living. Getting caught is not part of the job description. Yeah, with the ropes, um, <laughs> maybe. The, but but the the challenge posted to us is is can you create an environment where the Department of Defense can have a conversation with people in Silicon Valley about something important to Department of Defense? And and what people realize is there's really not. Um, Silicon Valley is not anti-military. Silicon Valley has a business process. And the military has a business process. And the two don't overlay each other. You know, and they don't communicate well together. So our answer was yes. And you know, back to this problem curation thing is, you know, and, and looking at the people in DOD and saying, the reason nobody's willing to talk to you is you keep coming out here and talking about military stuff. And it makes no sense to anybody in the commercial world. If, if you would translate the thing you're looking for rather than come people and say, I need a widget, come into Silicon Valley and talk about the problem you're trying to solve. That's step one. Step two is you translate that into something that, that is English to people in Silicon Valley, not military group speak. So that was step two. And then step three is you get out with the MVP of that conversation and find people who are really interested in it and recruit them to help you communicate to a wider crowd what you're trying to do. So we did this. And, and you know, the guy says, hey, that's great. <laughs> 30 days, I'm coming back and I want something. So I recruited a bunch of Stanford students. And some of them were former military, some were community. Then I broke them up in four teams and said, here's the military problem. We're going to work on supply chain stuff in the Pacific Ocean. You know, something hard, but it was common. You're working fuel, you're working maintenance, you're working spare parts, you're working, you know, something else. And and their job was to take the military version of that problem and translate it into something that they could walk around to look up valley and talk to people about the problem and look for the commercial twin. And then they were supposed to recruit people from those commercial organizations to help them rewrite the problem so that it was truly a dual-use problem. Once they had done that, they came back and said, okay, now you're going to pitch that problem to one of the managing partners of the venture capital firms on Sand Hill. You know, the guys who really do the big investing. And, and if the guy snatches you out of hand and says, let me email that to my portfolio company, just to get an A. And if he doesn't, you get an F. <laughs> um, it, it was smashing. It was absolutely amazing. The fact that they could actually, at first it is, they, they challenged the premise of all the problems. All the initial problem uh, definitions provided by the military were all wrong. They were able to build a new problem definition that made sense, but also made sense from a commercial standpoint and a military standpoint. They were able to recruit people to actually work with them, and they had venture capital folks snatching those problems out of their hands. So we were doing an outbrief at the end of 30 to the government client and to uh, former Secretary Bill Perry, who was at Stanford and much other Stanford elite people. And, and we, we got to the end of it. So just all great. And he said, great. What do you do next? And, and we kind of said, well, um, I use Stanford students during spring break, during the break to actually work on this. And, and unfortunately, that's not scalable because during the year, they're all taking a bunch of different classes and, it's just not going to work. And one of the students in the back of the room said, hey, wait a minute. If this had been a class at Stanford University, I would have taken it because I've learned more in the last three weeks than I've learned in the entire last year at Stanford. <laughs> Steve Blank happened to be sitting next to me uh, when we said this and essentially self-actualized. And between he and Bill Perry, um, who had a relationship going back all the way to, I think it was ESL back in the 70s, um, decided that we were going to teach a class at Stanford called Hacking for Defense. 
And we were going to take this um, problem curation process and match it against the lean methodology and the lean startup class he was talking about when we were going to take military problems and insert them into the classroom, recruit students to take them on as teams, treat them like startups, put them through this lean process and produce solutions. So nine months later, uh, we're teaching the first class and I've recruited problems from, you know, my peers in the military. <laughs> One of the problem sponsors that the guy I'm talking, he's responsible for worldwide the, the joint improvised explosive device um, defeat. This is the counter IED guy who's responsible for the entire world. Yeah. Yeah, and we're literally sitting in a bar in Palo Alto drinking a beer, and, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you problems for the classroom. But he said, one class a year and one problem at a time doesn't even scratch the issue for me. He goes, my problem is I have more problems coming into my organization and not enough being cleared and going out. He goes, and this class you're teaching these students I have a workforce who needs to be able to do this. So I'll agree to give you problems if you come back to my organization and build the same apparatus inside my organization. So suddenly, and, and I say it's all by accident, um, this isn't what I set out to do, but I'm now teaching and building an academic program. At the same time, I'm building this enterprise program. And, and at the same time, you know, we taught this first class at Stanford. We had the university show up and said, we're interested in teaching this class. <laughs> um, so we taught the first class in, um, I think, a spring of 2015, 2016, somewhere in there. Um, that class is now taught in, I think this year, was taught in 44 universities in the United States. Uh, seven in the UK. Uh, it's been launched uh, in Chile, Norway, uh, not Norway, Chile, and uh, Australia. And we've now launched a version of the class supporting Homeland Security, and we're launching a version next year supporting uh, diplomacy for the State Department. <laughs> the UK, the, the UK um, actually kind of flashed ahead of us they created for the defense college a master's degree in um, national security innovation where this hacking for defense class is the capstone class that they take. And I think the UK is on tap to teach this class in um, 20 universities next year. Wow. Um, it's, it's just an amazing environment to teach in. It's hard. Um, one of the things that we discovered when we first started teaching the class is we bring all these problems in. And BMT, my company, is responsible for doing the curation and the first cut on the problems and shaping and making sure they're adequate for the university. So yes, that the class, so that the class yeah. have got a real thing to get stuck into, rather yeah. than yeah. something that doesn't mean anything and won't turn into a solution. What you don't want is somebody saying, um, is flipping white papers at you. So, yeah, you know, I'll give you a problem, but I'm not going to be engaged. Come back and tell me what the problem is. is. You know, lean methodology requires, you know, deep customer, customer empathy engagement. So problem sponsors for this class, they, they're part of the class and they're part of the team. It's just like a startup. Ah, you're, okay. part of, you're part of the board of directors for this team, and your job is to make them successful. Connect and, them and, that, and, and that means that the that means if the class can solve the problem, the class have a customer. So that does this? Do these Correct. things actually become? Yes. Do these Absolutely. things actually become startups? Like you, you, you're on this class, you, you, you solve the problem, and and you have a company at the end, or do you have a? Do you have the idea for a company? Sometimes you do. Um, so we've actually had 19 companies launch out of the class. <laughs> um, if you Google a company called Capella Space. Uh, Capella is probably the largest of them. I think there are hundreds of millions of dollars in funding now. So every year, yes, we get them. Um, so the kind of three artifacts that come out at the end is, is the first thing that happens in this class is the team of students looks at the government problem sponsors and says, your problem's wrong. We've done customer discovery and built MVPs and hypothesis around your problem first, and your problem's wrong. It's really this. 
you were treating a symptom, but it's really this issue. Huh. And so, so the government clients already getting, you have just redefined my problem. And that in itself is, is considered a victory for the government folks that are participating. Um, so even if that's all they got, they, they'd be happy. But the team then goes further and says, in order to solve this problem, we'll build the ecosystem around it and the MVPs and a potential solution and a pathway by which you can potentially deliver that solution. And we'll identify the people, the organization, the contract vehicle, the money, that and, entire ecosystem. And pull all of those people into into defense who'd never thought that the commercial organizations who didn't think they had a defense, you know, a yeah, defense arm to their yeah. business or, or that their thing had a defense application. Yeah, actually it comes from it comes from commercial, it comes from the government, it comes from other places. Like here is the, the the nucleus of the network that it's going to take to get this done that you can actually start working with today. Um, so that's the two major one. And then the third one is um, the students, because they've interviewed so many people and been through so many MVPs, the data behind the, this is why you're solving this problem this way, is irrefutable. It is the world's best market research you could ever get for that time. And then in some cases, the government client is saying, just do that. Right? Form a company, whatever you're going to do, um, I want that. In some cases, the government says, I want you to keep working on that. Here's some additional funds. And you as a team will keep doing it. And in other cases, it's like, this is a policy issue. It's not a product. I have policies that are preventing this from happening. And we'll take that back and we're going to go work on it. So all of that comes out of this classroom. Um, the students will tell you that, A, it's the hardest class they've ever taken. But it's the only class they take in their academic career that allows them to use everything they use in the university, every network they built to work on a real problem with real people that gives them real experience that leads to real jobs. And, and that's the student motivation. And so the industry folks that participate in this, you know, they, they want to see what the government's working on and they want to see new companies. They're interested in hiring the students. Yeah. Uh, to, to actually get into the companies. Because um, now they've got domain expertise. And this they is have a new a, thing. They have experience. So, so they have, they're the only people with experience in this problem. Yeah. So, so as we go back to what I said about building an experience. Now, we, so I set up the nonprofit, the Common Mission Project. Their job is to run this academic platform. Okay. Um, so there's a Common Mission Project in the UK that is a UK nonprofit that is doing this in the UK. There's one in Australia and there's one in the United States. Ah, okay, um, so you, you, so rather than try and monetize this, you said this is this is me giving this back. I, I, you know, I have a rule about academic engagement, and it was we're not going to make money here. We're here to to build the experience for other people. So, um, I actually use um, funding from BMT's commercial work to set up those nonprofits, and then I we still donate money to help those entrepreneurs do things, you know, along with some other folks. BMT, on the other hand, you know, was following the track of the government agency that said, I need a workforce that can do this. Um, in a government agency with a workforce that works every day, you can't just, just create a 10-week academic program. You really have to, um, you have to tackle so many things in the agency to actually have them find solutions and do things. So we have grown into a company of 60 people that are engaged with you know, virtually every defense and intelligence agency in the United States, a uh, bunch in the UK, a bunch in Australia, Norway, Chile, NATO, and some other places where people are saying, we know we have to make progress. We can't keep up with the Chinese and something's got to change. And, and it really becomes uh, a conversation about culture change. But to get culture change to happen, you have to have a doctrine. So largely what we're doing is we've taken what we've learned from the classroom and turned it into an operating system with a doctrine that can be applied at the enterprise level that now allows people to understand how innovation works or does not work in their organization and who's responsible for what and, and how to actually um, upscale and upskill the folks in a company to actually do it. So how does that, how does that look different in practice? Because when we were talking before we were recording, you, you used the phrase innovation theater, and that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, 
real change yeah. and real innovation. So what what does it what does it look like in practice? So, you know, I'd love to to sketch it out for you. In practice, um, to to get innovation is something that comes out the end of the pipeline that significantly changes um, what people do or how they work or something. It, it has a significant impact. Often people mistake the activities that lead to innovation as the innovation itself. For instance, I'm going to run a hackathon. I'm being innovative. Uh-huh. Uh, you ran a hackathon and you got some interesting data, but if you didn't move that data to something and keep it moving in a pipeline, nothing happened at the end. So we have lots of people who are doing design thinking sessions. We're doing Agile. We're doing Scrum. They're confusing methodologies and activities with the process of actually keeping up, creating a pipeline of innovation. And so, so if I were to walk through the pipeline of innovation. Well, um, and, and you said, and you said earlier, look, you had 700 and something and, and 20 came exactly. out the other end, right? And so, and so exactly there's, there's, there's absolutely a volume game. Yeah. And unless you have the pipeline, you're wasting your time. Yeah. Because you don't, so you, you, don't, know, you don't know. On, yeah. They're focused on the thing that comes out not realizing that if you have an anemic pipeline, things aren't coming out the other end. And they underinvest on the front end of the pipeline, which says, I need a constant um, pool and generation of new ideas, people, technologies, and operating concepts. And I need to bring them someplace where they collide, and I learn about how things come together so I can see the the beginning nucleus of something that's worth spending time with. And then I take those things out and, and then curate them through a very specific process of what's the problem this solves? Who does it affect? How large a crowd does it affect? Um, who's the problem owner? You know, the person who sits closest to the problem, who is the expert and is what I would call the emotional, passionate entrepreneur who wants to see the problem solved. Who's that person's champion? What senior leader in the organization has the budget, the authority, and the desire to make that person successful with solving that problem? And, and then you go through, you know, it's a pathway. So we look at all those things as a part of um, curation and then prioritize the things that are most important, most impactful, and most ready to actually move on to a platform to do discovery using lean methodology, design thinking, you know, all those other things. And at the end of discovery, which is the third phase of this thing, um, you have the nucleus of an investable thing. I know the problem's right. Uh, I got the right ecosystem of people. I have a pathway by which I can get started and actually deliver this. And, and I'm ready, I think, to start doing um, customer building. And that's the point we move into this, what I call this incubation stage, which is what um, H4X Labs does for us. It's part incubator, part accelerator. Okay. Um, it, the incubation side of it, we're interested in um, truly understanding what the technology readiness level of the technology involved is. So with TRL, um, what I want to do is I want to understand what TRL the tech is at and what it will cost me to change that TRL level and, and improve it over what period of time. It's not a yes, no, it's where is it, what's it going to cost to change it. Um, we establish what we call an investment readiness level, which is a look at the team and the business. So if this is a business, does it have the right leadership, the right IP organization, the right structure, and the capacity to scale if this actually takes off? Um, and then if it doesn't have the right stuff, what is the stuff we would have to give to it over time that would actually allow it to do that? And then finally, we look at what we call an adoption readiness level. And that's, that's the customer. Is there a first customer? Is there a first user? Is there a super user who's going to give you feedback as you build and iterate on, on an actual solution? And, and then, you know, down the end of it, is there a market for this thing? Um, so as you enter the incubation stage, or for us, HRX Labs, we're looking for the answer to those three things. And are you, the enterprises you're working with, they're feeding that into the incubator or? Yes, in some yeah. cases. So, so the incubator is actually taking inputs from the academic world. 
Yeah. Um, we actually fund some of those classroom teams to come into oh, the incubator. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, we um, sometimes, the sometimes, sometimes, it, sometimes it's a spin-off from an enterprise. Sometimes, I guess, the enterprise is doing it internally themselves. Yeah. Sometimes we send people into the enterprise. So in some cases, we're running um, H4X labs actually inside the enterprise. Okay. So for um, at least one intelligence agency, we're doing that. Uh, for the defense logistics agency, we're doing that. Uh, and then for uh, the Defense Microelectronics Agency, we're actually doing it. So we're taking, again, we're taking our expertise, our model, I think, and moving it inside the organization and doing it from in there versus pulling it all out. Yeah, and when um, you pull it out, you then take you then take external funding into the lab to then yeah. accelerate yeah. the free. So, so if you kind of layer the funding, um, for instance, the common mission projects have a budget uh, that we provide, uh, in fact, in the United States, Lockheed Martin is a donor to the Common Mission Project. Um, we write checks of what I call company starting checks. So let's say a team comes out of um, a university and then we're interested in launching a company. We may write them a five or $10,000 grant just to help them establish the company. Yeah. And, and, and as they get to the end of that, we will assess them in terms of TRL, IRL, and ARL, and determine whether we want to bring them into HWorks Labs or not. They could decide to go someplace else, but invariably, those that we offer an invitation to come in, come in. Yeah. Um, at that point, um, BMNT steps in and is able to write larger checks uh, or on behalf of the government, provide them funding and contracts to continue to do things. Uh, and then they reach a point at the end of that incubation stage where these are no kidding investable entities that were now um, opening up to, um, you know, we run a, a defense investor network that's got over um, 90 or 100 uh, investment companies, private equity, private capital, venture, who are interested in this dual use space so that we just feed them into it and, and allow them to move from there. Um, after this incubation acceleration stage, you're now at the point of, you know, how do you get these things to actually show up as uh, solid commercial companies that can stand on their own two feet who can actually transition a technology into the government? And that's the much harder part. The, that innovation pipeline um, requires an operating system. That's what the doctrine comes in. It's just like the computer you and I are talking to. You know, the reason Squadcast works with Chrome with something else is the fact that there's an operating system that makes all these things play nice with each other. Yeah. We have essentially built um, what we call H4X is the operating system that can take you from one end of the pipeline of, of bringing things in all the way through where it goes out the other side. And, and that's what we're implementing inside large enterprise organizations. Very good. What, and what, what are the elements of the, what are the cultural change elements that, are a prerequisite to that happening? Um, I, I would say the, I don't know, the prerequisites, um, you know, obviously there has to be a desire. Um, one of the, the biggest things we have to find in every organization and with every problem is uh, the person who is passionate about seeing change happen. And, and so inside an organization, you want somebody who has the legitimate power and the desire to do something. Um, okay. And they're what I call the entrepreneurs. Some people call them entrepreneurs. They're entrepreneurs. Um, there is nothing more important than having uh, a passionate problem owner if you want to see a solution actually deployed. Because they're, they're just like uh, startup founders. They're, they're unilaterally focused on solve the problem. I'll accept risk. I'm going to devote my life to this and something's going to happen. So just like you would want in the founder of a company, you want the owner of a problem inside an organization to be that passionate about that problem to, to work it on. And if you um, haven't got that, it's not going to work. Stop. Stop what you're doing. And, the, and it's, I, well, I, was, I was just thinking because some organizations sort of hire former startup, like you know, startup founders to come in and be the entrepreneur in residence, which is, which is missing the passion. That's it's, the it's, passion. It's, the acti it's the activity without, without the feeling. Absolutely. So that's theater. Yeah. Okay. That lens of the theater. It actually also happens when you 
you have a problem sponsor and you get that passion on that person first and you get it perfectly designed and then the leadership of the organization that's that that's great we're going to take it from your hands and we're going to put it in this other cell and they're going to work on it so would you invest in a company where the the founder and the ip director said i'm going to get to this point that i'm leaving and and somebody else will do it but but we it's large enterprise organizations do it over and over again. They say, well, your job is to do X. And when you're done doing X, somebody will do Y. Rather than say, holy cow, you're solving this problem, stick with it. <laughs> you know what? You know what? My immediate thought is what they do is they say, thanks for doing that for three years. Now we want you to write speeches for somebody. And you go, you know what? Sod off. I'm leaving. <laughs> and, and that somebody says, why the hell am I doing this? Yeah. I'm not bad. Um, I see it happen in the military all the time is, you know, somebody, somebody gets to the point and it's handed to a staff and the staff says, I, I got 10 things more to do than I can get done already. And you just drop something else on my desk. Why am I doing this? I'm not yeah. interested. I'm not passionate in this. And so do you, does that, does that internal entrepreneur have to have uh, sponsorship because they're going to, they're going to, they're going to run into, they're going to run into the organizational antibodies. You know, they're going to be breaking rules, asking for resources, yep. beg, beg, borrow, and stealing. They need somebody to make sure they don't get fired. The, the system needs sponsorship, and the person does. So um, I talk about that senior leader champion. So I've got that passionate person in the entrepreneur who's the champion in the organization who has the power and the authority to actually, you know, invest in that person to get something done. Um, the person still has to accept the risk of doing it, and they're going to piss some people off, whatever. But... At the senior leader level, you know, their job is to help remove barriers for that person so they can do things. Um, we talk to all of the enterprise organizations about what their, uh, at the enterprise, but what their problem-solving mechanism is for reducing the barriers to innovation. And so, for instance, I get a no from security. I get no from finance, no from contracting. Whose job is it to sort that out? And the way it typically works is, well, if it's the entrepreneur, the passion guy, he's got to figure out how to break all those versus going, wait a minute. If, if I have, and I used to do this in the rapid equipping force, if I had a program manager who hit a barrier, then he couldn't move the barrier in 24 hours. He had to go to his next senior leader. And if he didn't move in 24 hours, it came to me. So it's 48 hours to solve a problem before it became my problem to go solve. If the organization isn't thinking that way and doesn't have what I call a, uh, an invested board of directors that, that come from finance, contracting, acquisition, HR, whatever, and if they're not told and invested in ensuring these innovation projects happen, it just dies because nobody's responsible for solving the problems. So, so when we go into an enterprise organization like this, we have a lot of those conversations about this, 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 this is all theater. And, and you people, by the way, aren't doing anything to solve these um, recurring organizational issues that are just throwing sand in the system. Because they um, know that they, they call they're calling you in because innovation isn't working inside their business, and they're saying this they is our problem. Come, come and help well, us. Um, do some of do some of them not take the medicine? Do some of them just not really well, listen? Yeah, I mean, there's some that just can't they can't help themselves. I I spent. Anecdotally, I think it was Macy's, and I'll, I'll pick on a commercial one. Um, the head of innovation for Macy's came to me you know, several years ago and said, we're, we're in trouble. We are, we are going to go bankrupt if we don't change, blah. And I spent months talking to him and talking to senior leaders and basically said, and everybody nods ahead and said, yes, we know we need to do that. They couldn't do it. As you know, Macy's bankrupt now. They don't exist yep. anymore. Can't get out of um, their own way. You see them get into this death spiral of, um, I got to generate cash or I have to do the business. So I'm going to do more of the same to squeak out 1% more productivity versus accepting the risk because I'm going to do something radically different and potentially change the name of my business. And, and you know, there, there are thousands of examples of companies that don't exist anymore because they couldn't figure that out. Um, I, I think that. And even within the government space, it's particularly bad because, you know, the government just keeps throwing money at things. And everybody gets frustrated because something's not changing. The, um, getting to the point where they understand that you can change 
then you have to recognize what we call the decay rate of your current capabilities. The capabilities you have in place to do things today are decaying based on a change in tech. Sometimes that accelerates beyond your ability to grasp it. If you don't have um, a pipeline of innovation and other things, you'll never see the weak signals that that's going to happen, nor will you be able to ramp up with a solution fast enough to keep up with that cycle. And you will just fall further and further and further behind and waste more and more and more of your resources trying to fall less further behind, but it doesn't work. Because you back, you've just got the your operating system for for driving innovations wrong. You're measuring measuring the wrong things. Um, you have no operating system that, that helps you adjust to things. Okay, and I think that's you know I, I think from the government standpoint, that's one of the biggest challenges for the military is that largely they built their their acquisition systems to buy you know material and build new ships and planes and tanks. It's all built on a 1980s. Cold War models where things move fairly slowly and you have 10 years to develop the next tank or airplane before you deploy it. Now we're in a world where software changes every three years significantly. And software, um, they're, they're trying to apply the same 10-year model to software, not really that, that software is also changing the hardware. And so, so we have to do the complete flip. Of, of how we look at acquiring and doing things. That's why that when I say this culture thing is so important is, is you have to build a culture inside your organization that understands that. And it can't just be a cell that does innovation stuff in, in, in left field someplace. It has to be inculcated inside the, the entire organization. And, and the power, the, the supporting power base for that has to be absolutely right at the top. Absolutely, it, it, because yeah, because you, you've got you've got to be you've got to be able to solve problems in within forty eight hours. So that's the that's the metric of if you've got it right, people driving the innovation will will not get blocked for more than forty eight hours at any one time. Yes, um, and you may stand a chance of actually keeping them in your organization because they don't get frustrated and pissing leave. them off to the point where they quit <laughs> yeah. and go someplace where they can get paid for that. And that was the case with me. Is I'm out of here. I'm going to go do it over here because you're not going to let me do what I know I need to do. Yeah. Um, I think that now we actually have to go back to the classroom and say, now the challenge is, is how do I bring in folks at the young age and onboard them into the organization with those skills and experiences so that I can actually do that? At the same time, I'm retraining an aging workforce that were brought up on a completely different system. And there's a lot of conflict between the two. Uh -huh. where's the where's the biggest source of conflict? Uh, I think it's a significant conflict. You know, people call the you know the frozen middle. I can't seem to change the frozen middle. Well, uh -huh. your middle management was trained under a certain set of management principles. They were given a set of rules. They were hired a specific way. Um, they were promoted. They've been promoted because they were good at it. Yeah. And now you're telling them the rules are changing. Well, that's going to be yeah. hard. And by the way, you didn't change the promotion incentive system either. So, so when they say, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, I know I got to do it. But my promotion and financial incentive system is still based on the old hierarchy. Yeah. That, that hasn't changed yet. So why would I accept risk in doing this? Because you really haven't changed anything. You, you've talked all the way around it, but the HR system is still what it was. Um, that that the significant challenge for folks to realize it, that so much about um, innovation and establishing an operating system and a pipeline is about the mundane things. It's about people and about sociology. It's less about yeah. we have all the tech in the world. Um, we do. What we have is is a sociology problem. It's how do I enable people to work faster together and to more rapidly bring the right people in the room uh, to incubate something and how do I keep them together on that until it can actually be transitioned into something else. And you know, the, um, the first problem we typically run into is, is I got this team and they came from three different labs in the organization. One's in Atlanta, one's in Illinois, one's in California. They want that team to work together. And, and the HR folks say, I don't know how to do that. 
This guy's paid to work on that lab. This guy's paid to work on that lab. This guy's paid to work on that lab. Now you want me to put them underneath a different place. Who's paying them? Where, where's the front line that pays for these guys? Because they're all, you know, I, I spent six months with an organization trying to sort that out for three people. So this is where I go back to is that your system is getting in the way. Yeah. And, and, and actually we spent, we spent 179 days talking about the problem and one day actually solving the problem. And we found the one guy who could said, stop that, just do this. But, but that happens every day. Pete, when you look back at your skunk works thing, that where we started this conversation and you said 20, you took, you got 20 things into the, yeah. into the battlefield, which, yeah. which one are you most proud of and which one was the most fun? And they might be the same thing, but they might not be. I think they were the same thing. Um, and I'll try and shorten the story. I think in, yeah, in early 2010, I went back to Afghanistan for the first time in five years, now under this new role. And I knew nothing about anything. I had literally, I just come out of uh, a combat tour in Iraq as a brigade commander. Yeah, and now suddenly I've, I've got a budget and people and, and free reign to do things. So I went to see... Uh, friends of mine, you know, guys who were, um, in your case, they'd be brigadiers in charge of regiments yeah. who were based in Afghanistan. And I sat down and looked at them and said, I don't know what it can do, but I can do something. And what are the issues? This was right at the start of the, the surge in, in dismounted troops in Afghanistan when we realized we were losing the war. Um, and the first guy, um, he and I came out of the, the Ranger Regiment together, so, you know, knew each other really well. And I, I just happened to bump into him on an airfield and he had been in Kandahar for, I think three weeks. He, um, he had probably lost 20 pounds since he'd been there. He was losing 10 to 15 soldiers a day, killed or wounded a day in Kandahar because what the Taliban had done is we put all these dismounted guys in. It used to be they chased, you know, the big vehicles and tried to blow them up with IEDs going down the road. Well, they realized we weren't using vehicles anymore, and it was a lot easier to kill dismounted guys. And they went after them, and they were really, really successful. Um, he looked at me and said, "Listen, I, I don't know what you can do, and I'm tired of people asking me what they could. What, what, what do I need? I just need people to do something." And his message to me was, "Is I'm so busy in this fight trying to keep people alive from day to day to day, I don't have time to think about the problem. I'm consumed just trying to keep my people alive." Um, and that was, I don't want to say it was a little shocking to me, but it was like, I can feel his pain. Um, I next ran into a guy in the outskirts of Kandahar, uh, who was also served in the Ranger Regiment with a sin. And, and this guy was a little more directive about it. He said, I, you know, if you do anything, do something about the dismounted IEDs. And I went, what dismounted IEDs? I've been all over the theater. I've talked to every headquarters and nobody has identified that as a priority problem. And he said, let me show you a couple of charts about the number of attacks I've had in the last week versus what it was a year ago. Um, the last guy I talked to was the head of the, the Joint Special Operations Task Force who was responsible for chasing Al-Qaeda um, and, you know, the really serious uh, terrorists. And, and he was very specific and said, I need you to take those big vehicles that you're using to clear highways and I need you to shrink them down so they'll fit on a goat path that I can push out of the back of a helicopter because I'm not losing people on highways. I'm losing them on the pathway up to a house on a mountaintop. And I took that back and, and very rapidly, you know, found a bunch of potential solutions. Um, we did everything from uh, creating, a, you know, it used to be that a dismounted instrument would use a mine detector. Uh-huh. To find things, you know, 1960s era technology to find ferrous metal objects. Well, the problem is IEDs were built out of fertilizer. There was no ferrous metal involved in anything. And they were using IR triggers and other things. So we figured out how to put ground penetrating radar in, in something on a six inch puck and replace the edge of those things. So now we're able to use uh, ground penetrating radar to find things. I actually found that in a Czech company. Huh. Um, I used uh, um, 
technology we actually found in the UK uh, called Goldie, which was a, um, a gradiometer that was used to find um, buried wire, which would find you tripwires or triggers or other yeah. things like that. Um, and then finally, I stumbled across um, a robotic platform. And it's actually it came out of Kinetic, which you know, British company. Yeah. Um, but Kinetic had figured out how to take Bobcat um, trackers, you know, the uh-huh. truck that yeah. you buy commercially all over the place, and build a robotics platform that there was an application. You just plug it into the back, and I suddenly you have a robot. They had used those robots to help place sensors in the um, in the um, radiologically impacted zones of the Fukushima meltdown in Japan. Uh-huh. So as we're talking to the guys at Kinetic about cloning these pathways, that the, you know one of the ideas was we'll take one of these robots and put a, a mine rolling system on the front of it, and it'll be three feet wide. So we ended up taking one of Kinetic's robots and we went to the tank system placed up in Detroit, Michigan, where they built the mine plow for M1 tanks and, and, and said, we just, we want three wheels, not want 30, but, but figure out how to put something on the front of this. And then we went to uh, naval software developers in San Diego and had them build the software package that integrated that stuff. And then went to someplace in Alabama and put it all together. And we created um, uh, essentially a robotic um, mine roller system <laughs> that was three feet wide that would fit in the back of a Chinook helicopter and, and would clear the pathway of virtually any deeply barreled pressure switch system. Um, we deployed um, all of that plus a number of other systems you know, in less than six months. So from the time we, we had the idea to do the mine roller um, system to the time we had 54 of them in theater was nine months. Um, the same thing with some of the other things. Nine months. And, and that was light speed. We saved a lot of lives. I was going to say, do you have any, do you have any sense of hundreds. how many lives you saved? Hundreds of lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I can get back and tell you, um, I still have pictures today of, of mine all those systems with one wheel blown off. Uh, where people were doing things. I said, you know what? It blew the wheel off, but it kept working. Um, and anecdotally, the other the, the number of fines. You can actually see the data on the attacks. Um, what we used to track was the number of wounded per attack over time. And I've actually got the charts, and you can watch it, it suddenly drop off. As, uh, you, as you put bobcats in theater. Yeah, because yeah. we got the right, right kit. And we continue to develop kit based on this very rapid model of observing changes in triggering systems or attack methodology in theater and very rapidly making changes to the systems or introducing new systems uh, in that spot. And then behind that, we built a system that allowed us to either scale or not scale. How many times you use that? Typically what the government thinks is I got a problem. I develop a solution. The solution works in one place and I scale it and give it to everybody. Well, the time that it takes you to do that, the terrorists have now developed five other ways to work around it. So, so while you're scaling your system, they're stockpiling ammunition to hit you a different way. Oh, look, I've worked in big companies. I know how that works. <laughs> so it is exactly the same thing happening with big companies. They send you. They send you the thing that was solution to the problem that was eighteen months ago, and and they're very very proud that eighteen months. That they got it to you in 18 months. And when you complain, they say, but it only took us 18 months. You don't understand how complicated this is to solve this problem. No. And, you know, you're in the front line, you just shrug and put, I, it, I think put, we, put it in a corner and move on. You know, so we've integrated that as, as part of um, problem curation. We actually go through the thought process of, is the underlying technology lending itself to this, this problem? Is it changing in a one-year cycle, a two-year cycle, a five-year cycle, a 10-year cycle? Because what you don't want to do is, um, I used to say, if, if this problem is going to change in 60 days or six months, pull your credit card out and just buy something commercially to apply to it. Don't develop anything. Yeah. Because you, you can't develop something fast enough to keep all this. Just pull the credit card out and do it. Um, if it's going to be around for a couple of years, then, yeah, we can do a little more work with it. And if it's a long-time enduring threat that will never change, um, 
then we can actually do some serious developmental work. Pete, what is it when you look back over, I don't know, the, what you've been doing recently or even your military career, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Um, I, you know, first and foremost, that uh, um, innovation requires an operating system. I, I truly understand how innovation works. I understand the ontology of the phases and I understand how all these different methodologies and activities, actually how they fit together in commutes, whether it's design thinking or scrum or hackathons or sprints or other things. You can actually look at this system now and I can tell you how to get from point A to point B. Um, and, you know, I personally, I'm most proud of the academic platform, you know, how we're feeding young men and women into the public space who can do this. Uh, I think that, you know, that's, I wish I had been able to do what I can do today with my own workforce back then. Huh. I'll say the one thing, I, I was never able to completely change my workforce because I was learning as I went along. It's it's funny, isn't it, how you get to the, a certain point in your life and it's like, ah, all of this stuff gets to here. I wish I could just know what I know now 20 years earlier. That was a good step. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and is there a have – you, have you written a book yet? I mean, you've got the course, so you could go right, take the course. But... Steve, Steve Blank and I are writing a book right now. Okay, brilliant. That's what when we're doing. Are you, is it, when's it due out? Whenever um, you get around it. Whenever you finish it? 2021. Well, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, so we do have a publisher. Um, so Wiley is the publisher. Um, you know, the challenge was we started the book and COVID hit. And then um, I don't know if you know Steve or not, but, but Steve's uh, ranch – was caught up in the California wildfires. It saved the house. Oh, okay. The ranch got fried. Uh-huh. So Steve has gone from COVID to his ranch burning down, except for the house, uh, over the last six months. He's up so a lot. It, it, it put a damper on book writing. Um, yeah. Although we're, I think we're out the end of that now. You know, we, we, it, it, our problem is we have so much. We have seen so much in the classroom and so much in the enterprise level that, that it's crushing it down. So, okay, what is – what is the innovation doctrine? What What is it people have to get from this in order to function? Um, so I, I suspect we'll spend the six months cra- next six months crashing on it. But we're going to get then, there. Cool. And so uh, are there books that people sh- around innovation, are there books that people should pick up that you that have been somewhat helpful to, even if it's not the whole OS? Or are there other books that relate to business that you think people should pick up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can, you know, because obviously um, Four Steps to an Epiphany, The Lean Startup, you know, uh, Four Steps to an Epiphany is the the book that Steve Blank wrote that led to the launch of the Lean Startup class that Eric Rice took from Steve Blank that led to the Lean Startup manual. Um, there's also a book, and I'd have to send it to you, I think that the title is roughly um, – identifying the weak weak signals that things are changing. Okay. But it's really about how you, how you build um, the process of understanding and getting the information you need to understand that, that something changed. And then how you triage those things to determine whether you really ought to act or not. Okay. Um, and I will tell you that as, as I took over the rapid equipment force and the Skunk Works job, I read that book and, and it, taught, it was exactly what my job was. I was the one who was supposed to go out and find the weak signals and triage them and determine. Well, and, and that you know, story you were telling about the Bobcats is exactly that. Going and talking to the guys on the ground and just, you know, piece it together until you've got a problem statement that yeah. makes sense. And what, is, what is the real problem? And as you know, is the problem is countering dismounted IEDs, but the manifestation of that problem was different based on where you were. Yeah. For the Marines, they were up in trees. For other people, they were in walls. For other people's um, um, pressure plated IDs, somebody was IR triggers. The common thread was they were all in goat pass where you couldn't drive a vehicle. So I had to have a suite of tools that were built to solve that same problem just under different conditions. That, that weak signal thing is what tells you that um, this is only manifesting itself in one place versus, wow, this trigger just went everywhere. Everybody's using this damn thing now. And you're going you're gonna to send me that the title of that book, so I can put yeah, that in the show Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah that's brilliant. Uh, anything, any other books on um, even sort of broader cultural books or business books that you think have had an influence on you? Oh, God, I read so many. I could send you a whole list of them. Um, <laughs> no, no, don't worry. Which 
Which is the one you read most recently that made an impact? You know, one of the recent ones that I've read, and I'll have to say title, it was about uh, the guy who built the landing craft for World War II and the transition of his business from building uh, fishing boats in New Orleans, Louisiana, to um, building a process that um, he essentially designed and built um, thousands of LSTs over time and then transitioned after the war to where he eventually went bankrupt. Um, it, it's just a fascinating ontology, a historical example. I, I tell people, just do you think you have an original problem? Other people have been through this before. You just have to go back and, and find what people have documented and written about it. Um, I, I tend to, I spend a lot of time looking, and simply because we're writing a book, I'm looking for historical examples of things that, that also reflect um, forward. Um, uh-huh. I, you know, it, it's things, it's simple things. Like if you ever read in Defense of Duffer's Drift, it was like yeah. a British pamphlet that was in time. It, it, you know, it's about the movie Groundhog Day? Yeah. Okay. In Defense of Duffer's Drift is a military version of Groundhog Day. This is a, a guy who takes over command of a, a British unit during the Boer War. And he shows up and he does all the right things to defend his piece of terrain and he gets killed. And he wakes up the next morning and he's alive again. And, and he, he inculcates the lessons of what did I do wrong? And the attack happens over again. And he dies and happens like 10 times before he actually wins the battle. And, and the lesson I'm trying to give to people is that's what getting experience is like. Now, we don't want you to die, but we want you to get things wrong so you learn why you're doing things correctly. It's not yeah. enough to know the right answer. You have to understand why you have the right answer and in what circumstances, right? So in Defense of Duffer Drift, it's a great book. Fantastic. Pete, thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Awesome. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.